Go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles tonight to Psalm 95. Psalm 95, we're going to the book of Psalms tonight. And uh, we're going to go through this whole psalm. It is 11 verses long. And uh, when you find that, you can stand with me for the reading of God's word. Psalm chapter 95. If you've got it, say amen. That sounds unanimous. Psalm 95, beginning at verse 1, we're going to read the whole chapter, and this is what it says. O come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving, and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God, and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hills is his also. The sea is his, and he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart as in the provocation and as in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work. Forty years long was I grieved with this generation and said, it is a people that do err in their heart, and they have not known my ways, unto whom I swear in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. Look again at verse 3. It says, for the Lord is a great God, and a great king above all king or above all gods. Verse 7, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. I want to title the message tonight, the phrase taken from verse 3, the Lord is a great God. You may be seated. The Lord is a great God. I just love that. Now, Just by way of introduction, this psalm here is not attributed to anybody in the text there. However, uh, this psalm is uh, mentioned and is actually, um, it is quoted and discussed in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4. And in that, they mention that that this psalm was in David. So there is a reference in Hebrews that perhaps this psalm is actually a psalm of David. Now, it is possible because the bulk uh, or a lot of the Psalms are Psalms of David that perhaps when he was quoted in Hebrews, he was just saying in the Psalms, but it would make more sense if he was trying to say in the Psalms if he would have just said in the Psalms. So I think the reference in Hebrews about it being in David is to say that this Psalm is probably a Psalm of David. I think that's a safe assumption to make there. And so uh, I do believe this is a psalm of David. It's quite an amazing psalm, actually. This is a psalm of worship and praise to God, if you noticed. It's a call to enter into his presence and to make a joyful praise to the rock of our salvation. It's a call for thanksgiving for the goodness and mercies of God. It's a call to worship the Lord. As it said, he is a great God and the king above all gods. It's also a psalm of warning. It's a call to heed the voice of God, to be obedient to his leading, to trust his word, to believe his promises, 
to not provoke him in unbelief, but to learn his ways and continue in the faith that we may enjoy his rest, not only here, but in the world to come. It's divided in two halves, if you've noticed. The first, verses one through seven, is a call to worship. And the second half, verses seven through 11, is a warning to heed. And so tonight, I would suggest to us that we be diligent to observe both of these instructions that we find in Psalm chapter 95. Now, first of all, I want to mention to you that, as I said, this is a psalm. It is a call to worship God. This psalm is a call to worship God because God is worthy to be praised. How many would agree that God is worthy to be praised? Amen. Verse 1, David says, Oh, come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. He is saying, it's time to worship the Lord. David is calling and saying, this is a call to worship God because God is worthy to be praised. See, David is going to begin to stir up this congregation to praise the Lord. They use these psalms in temple worship, and David uh, is going to stir up uh, them to worship. God. I want you to notice that the ones that are called to worship him are the people of God. Did you notice that in verse 1? It says, O come, let us sing. That is, that he's calling the people of God to come and to worship God. He's stirring up the hearts of the people that they would come together and worship the Lord with singing. In this particular psalm, the way that he's saying that we ought to worship God is with singing. Just like we were doing a moment ago, we were all singing together praising the Lord, clapping our hands, giving honor to God. And David is saying, come on, all the people of God, let's come together and let's praise the Lord. That brings me to the next portion of it, which is the direction of our worship should be to God. That's what he says in that first verse. Let us sing unto the Lord. It's one thing to come into the house of the Lord and to sing songs. There are some people who just sing and they're really singing to each other. But David is calling this congregation and he says, come and let us sing unto the Lord. Because why? Because God is the one that's worthy to be praised. So he's calling this congregation. He's calling the people of God, come together and let's sing to the Lord. Let's lift up our voices to the Lord because he's worthy to be praised. Amen. I love that. He says, he says, come and let's sing unto the Lord. You know, our direction should always be to the Lord when we come to the house of the Lord. It should always be to him. And not only that, but he says that we should make a joyful noise. Our worship should be done with joy from the heart. I have heard joyful noises in church. I grew up in church. I've heard all the noises in church. Believe me. I've made several of them myself, too. But the Lord is calling us to make a joyful noise unto the Lord. See, the people of God, we have so much to sing about. There are a lot of people uh, that have nothing to sing about. They have no hope. They have no real joy. But to the people of God, the ones that know Jesus Christ, we have in us a real joy. We have something to sing about. And when we do, we can begin to open our mouth with praise to God, with the direction of our praise to God and make a joyful noise 
It doesn't matter what kind of talent you have or what kind of talent you don't have. The Bible says that we are to come together and David is stirring the congregation to come together and everybody open their mouth and everybody sing and praise the Lord. We've all got something to sing about. I heard one person say, if God has given you a good singing voice, use it for him. If he has not given you a good singing voice, give it back to him. (laughs) But either way, what should we do? We should sing to the Lord. There's not really any real excuse for people to say, I don't sing or I don't do this. The Bible gives us the instruction that we're to do that. So, I mean, you're going to have to take that up with God. Whether you like how you sing or you don't like how you sing, in any event, we're to make a joyful noise in our heart to the Lord. Now, not only uh, is he calling the people of God to worship and, and the direction of our worship is to him and we're to have a joyful heart to the Lord But he's also saying that we are to worship based on truth and experience. Truth and experience. Look look again at verse 1. And you're saying, we'll never get out of verse 1. We got 11 verses here. We'll get there. Don't worry. He says, make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. So David is stirring up their memory here. The reason that he's doing this, this is a reference actually to the time when God himself provided water for them in the desert. When they needed water in the desert and they didn't have it, and God caused water to come out of the rock to give them water in the desert. And so he's stirring up their mind. He's saying, I want you to remember the provisions that God has made for you in the past. I want you to remember the things that God has done for you. David is stirring them up, saying, that time when we were without water in the wilderness, and God himself, the Bible says that that rock was Christ Jesus. And the water came from that rock and he is the rock of our salvation and he says hey guys here's something to sing about the Lord is the rock of our salvation and in the same way tonight I want to stir your minds up as we were singing already with these songs in church we're stirring ourselves up we're worshiping on the basis of truth and experience see David was saying there was an experience in our past the people of God have known the provisions of God and he's saying this is a true thing so if you really want to sing with joy in your heart think about those times where God has moved in your life and begin to praise him on the basis of truth and the experience that you've known. See, we've known the good hand of God. We've known the blessings of God. We've known the mercies and the joy and the grace of God. And as we think about those things, it should stir our hearts to praise the Lord. Amen. Not only is he their rock of salvation, but Jesus is our rock of salvation. You know, there's many things in this that he's going to reference to the people of Israel, but also we can apply it to our lives today in this day. And so the next thing I want you to look at is the call to come into his presence. Now, the last few times I've been preaching, I've been speaking about the presence of God. And I think that's important for God's people to desire again to be in the presence of God. 
to desire once again to come into the presence of God, to experience the joy of being in the presence of God, to come into his house expecting that God is going to do something and believing. And when you get here, let it not be the first time you prayed or the first time you sang or the first time you read your Bible. But before you even get here, you should be in the presence of God, praying and singing to the Lord and reading the word so that when you come here and we all get Together, together, we can join together in unison, in one heart, in one mind, in one accord, and praise the living God. It's a call to come into the presence of God. David says, if we're going to get this thing going, I've got to stir you guys up. And then he says, I want you to come into the presence of the Lord. He said, that's what I want to do. I want you to come into the presence of the Lord. Look at verse 2. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. See, we're taking a psalm tonight and we're thinking about it. We're thinking on the good things of God. And David is writing this psalm because he wants to stir them up. And he, no doubt, when they would come to worship the Lord, they would use other psalms and they would sing these to one another. They would sing these, of course, to God. But as they're singing them to God together, they're all stirred up about it. It's a beautiful thing. In, in David's day, the presence of God was primarily experienced in the tabernacle or temple worship later on in that day. But today, the Spirit of God lives inside of us. The Spirit of God lives inside of us. We can enter his presence wherever we are. You know that. Church, do you realize that wherever you are, you can enter into the presence of God? When you go into your prayer closet, what are you doing? You're making a conscious effort to come into the presence of God. When you begin to call on his name, what are you doing? You're coming into the presence of God. When you begin to intercede for people, uh, when you begin to pray for them, for their needs and, and the things that are going on in their life, what are you doing? You're coming into the presence of God because you know that in the presence of God, mighty, wonderful, incredible things can happen. And so he's calling us to come into the presence of, his, of God. He's calling them, and, and today he's calling us through the scriptures. The Holy Spirit is calling this church, come into the presence of God. Don't just let the, the blessings of years gone by. Don't just read about it. We can experience it today. We can see God move again today. We can be the flame of fire, a burning and shining light in the hour that we live in. It will take the time to be in the presence of God. How can we take anything to anyone else if we haven't first gone to the source of life? How can we expect to be a minister or a blessing or a joy to anyone except we've been in the presence of God? And it's a privilege to come into his presence. You know that. Jesus paid the price at Calvary that we could have access to the throne of grace. He, he suffered and died on the cross, rose again from the grave, giving us access to come boldly to the throne of God. Because of what Jesus has done, we can come into his presence with boldness. God has provided the way. And it's a, it's a wonderful thing that not only can we do that on our own, by ourselves, but I believe that there is a special blessing when we do what we're doing tonight. 
that there's a special blessing when we do what we do tonight, and it's the same thing David was doing there, calling the congregation together, saying, come together. We're going to have church, people. He was calling the congregation together. Let's worship the Lord. Let's get the psalms out. Let's start singing songs to the Lord. Hey, let's come into his presence. Because the scripture says that he inhabits the praises of Israel. And in the same way, he inhabits the praises of his people today. So then when we come in and we begin to praise God and we begin to worship the Lord, we know that he's going to come and inhabit the praises of his people. As we begin to clap our hands and praise him, as we begin to lift our voices and shout glory to God, we know that he's going to meet us in this place in a very special way. Hallelujah. <laughs> Praise God. We gather together, there's a special blessing, and we should come into his presence, yes, with joy, yes, with thanksgiving, but also humility of heart. We don't deserve to be able to come into your presence, Lord. It's not something that, that we've earned. We don't deserve it, but Jesus, you provided the means that I can come even be here tonight and to worship you. So we should have a heart of humility, a heart of humble thankfulness to God. Oh, God, thank you that I can even be in this place tonight it shouldn't be in our hearts and I have to but I get to it should be a thank you Lord that I get to I want you to think about the fact that God our God inspires worship look at verse 3 for the Lord is a great God I just love that the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. That's little G's. I love that phrase. The Lord is a great God. You think about it. He's supreme over all the universe. He is the creator of all things. He is the sustainer of all things. He is great in glory, great in power, Great in justice, in grace, in mercy, in love, in compassion, in goodness, in righteousness, in holiness, in every way to the highest degree, our God is a great God. And not only is he a great God, but it says that he is a great king above all gods. The Lord is not just one among the gods, but he is the God. He is the God. All the other gods, little g's, are the product of man's imaginations. You think about it that they cannot see, they cannot hear, they cannot speak, they cannot heal, they cannot deliver, they cannot create, they cannot save, they are dead and they are nothing. But the Lord is the living God. He is the creator God. He is the sustainer God. He's the one who spoke in the universe was created. He hears all. He sees all. He knows all. He governs all. He is everywhere, in every place, at every time, in eternity past, in eternity future, and everything in between. He heals. He delivers. He saves because he is the king above all false gods. He is the king of kings and Lord of lords. The Lord is a great God. God and Jesus Christ is his name. Yeah. Hallelujah. Yeah. 
Our God inspires praise. Praise him in this house tonight. Give God glory. Praise God. When we think about who he is, our God inspires worship. He should inspire worship in your heart. Not only that, but you think about creation itself. God himself inspires worship, but creation inspires worship. I love it. Verses four and five. Listen to this. It's, it's beautiful. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hills is, also, is his also. The sea is his, and he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Creation is amazing, isn't it? Consider the depths of the oceans. I looked up, for example, the Mariana Trench, over 36,000 feet deep. I believe that's about seven miles. Consider the heights of the mountain ranges in all the places, and the tallest of those being Mount Everest, soaring over 29,000 feet into the heavens. Consider the endless expanse of the universe, the sun, the moon, the stars. Consider the earth itself. I, I looked this number up. There, there is 197 million square miles of surface area on the earth. 71% water. Within that, there's over 57 million square miles of land. And on this earth, there's countless numbers of people and bugs and birds and fish and all sorts of living things, each one uniquely designed and created by God. Isn't that fascinating? Every little bug and microscopic organism, everything that's crawling and creeping on this earth designed and created by God. Here's something else that'll blow your mind. I thought it was interesting. For every person on earth, there are 200 million insects. Now, I didn't count them, but if you've ever worn a headlamp in Missouri at night in the summertime, you know that figure is correct. I've eaten 200 million bugs. You go fishing hungry and you come home full. I mean, what more could you want? <laughs> according to, uh, here's another one. According to Encyclopedia Britannica, there are more bugs in one square mile of rural land than there are human beings on the entire earth. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> and then we talk about 57 million square miles of land. And again, every one of those uniquely designed and created by our God. And the further you go out, the more incredible he gets. And the further you look in, the more incredible he gets. Now, it all testifies to God's glory, doesn't it? It all testifies to his glory. And what does it do? It inspires worship. Look again at verse four. Think about it like this. In his hands are the deep places of the earth. The Mariana Trench fits in his hand with room to spare. You know, that's that deep place, 36,000 feet deep. You say, well, what about Everest? 
Look at verse 4. The strength of the hills is, is also, it's just a hill to God. What about the oceans? Verse 5. The sea is his, and he made it. Remember the disciples were out on the sea, and the winds and the waves were raging, and Jesus said, be still, peace. And they said, wow, even the winds and the seas obey him. Why? Because he made them. They're his. <laughs> That's why. What about those 57 million square miles of land? Verse 5, his hands formed the dry land. Isn't God incredible? Every blade of grass, every insect, every mountain range, every valley, the oceans, the, the deep places in those oceans, the creatures in the oceans that they're discovering more every day, the trees that lift their limbs upward and praise to God. Have you ever thought about there? Their limbs are always going up. The brilliant colors, the galaxies, the planets, the sun, the moon, the stars, every square inch of everything that exists, exists because of Jesus. And it exists to give him glory because all things were created by him and for him. And he can look out in sovereign power over all of creation and say, it is mine and it is for my glory. What an amazing God. We should worship God because he is our maker. Look at verse 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. I think it's great that after he says all that stuff, he gives another invitation. Okay, if I didn't get you the first time, oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. So not only has he created all of this stuff that we've been talking about, but he created man in his image. And we are the object of his special affection. Have you ever thought about that? Of all the things out there, and man is the object of his special affection. I want you to think about this, that he created us physically. You know the verse over in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Let me read that for you. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. That's how it happened. I've often read that, and I've wondered, because you see the image of, of God stooping down to form man from the dust of the ground, don't you? Isn't that the image that comes to mind? And then you read over on the night that Jesus was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, it says that he fell down and was praying, and his sweat became, as it were, great drops of blood. And there he is in an agony, getting ready to go to the cross. And I've often wondered in that moment if Jesus remembered back to that day, stooped down over Adam, forming that first man, laboring over him, and then here he is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's laboring, getting ready to save the man that he formed from the same dirt that he's looking at. And how he was toiling in that night. 
It says that he was in an agony and his sweat became, as it were, great drops of blood. And, and I, I can't help but think that perhaps Jesus thought back to that moment that he was forming Adam. And as he's looking into that face, he sees not just Adam, but he sees all of us in here tonight. Every person that would ever live. And this one that he formed from the dust of the ground and now he's laboring to save him and to redeem him. It's really a fascinating thought when you think about it. I want you to think of something else about this along this line. You know the Holy Spirit is very gentle. The Holy Spirit is a gentleman. And it's amazing to me when I read that because God is so powerful that he spoke the worlds into existence. But he is also so very gentle that he can form man from the dust. Have you ever blown on dust? I can't see now. But God, as mighty and powerful as he is, glorious in majesty, forms man from the dust of the ground, and the Spirit of God is so gentle. He breathes into that lifeless pile of dust and doesn't blow him away. But man becomes a living soul. And I thought, isn't it so amazing that in the same way the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us and we don't come apart. Why? Because Jesus holds all things together. Amen. Isn't that amazing? Amen. We don't just blow to pieces. The God that can create universe, speak universes into existence and move mountains is gentle enough that he can come and live inside of us. I find that amazing. Not only did he create us physically, but he created us spiritually. Verse 6 again, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Charles Spurgeon quoted a man by the name of John Boys in his Treasury of David. And this is what he said. It's talking about let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. And John Boys says this, we don't bow down before a crucifix not before a rotten image, not before a fair picture of a foul saint. These are not our makers. We made them. They made not us. Our God unto whom we must sing, our God unto whom we must sing and whom we must rejoice, before whom we must worship, is a great king above all gods. He is no God of lead, no God of bread, no brazen God, no wooden God, we must not fall down and worship our lady, but our Lord. Not any martyr, but our maker. Not any saint, but our savior. Amen. 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 I like that. I think that says it, don't you? And the amazing thing is that if we've been born again, it was an act of God. Being born again was an act of God. The Bible says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. That's over in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We were saved by grace through faith. The Father drew us 
to his son. We came to the cross. We seen ourselves in the light of the cross. We were guilty sinners. When we see ourselves in the presence of God, we're guilty in his presence. We're guilty sinners condemned to die. But God showed us mercy and Jesus took our punishment on the cross. And the moment that we trusted in his death, burial, and resurrection and uh, repented of our sins, we were born again and the spirit of God came to live inside of us. So not only were we created physically, but he also created us spiritually. I was thinking about a story that I read of uh, the Prussian king Frederick the Great. Maybe you've heard it before. He was touring a, a prison in Berlin. And as he's touring this prison, one by one, the prisoners, they fall on their knees before him, and they were telling him how innocent they were. All these prisoners, as he's walking through there, they're saying, oh, king, we're innocent. We're so innocent. You know, falling down on it. We're, we're innocent, king. Except for one man. All of them were saying, we're innocent. Except for one man remained silent. So Frederick calls to him and says, why are you here? And he says, armed robbery, your majesty. And he says, are you guilty? The man says, yes, indeed, your majesty. I deserve my punishment. So Frederick, the king, he summons the jailer and he orders him and he says this, release this guilty wretch at once. I will not have him kept in this prison where he will corrupt all the fine, innocent people who occupy it. <laughs> We're never going to receive God's pardon until we see ourselves guilty in the eyes of the king. As long as we proclaim our innocence, we will never come to him. But the moment we come to Jesus Christ and say, yes, I've broken your laws. I've offended you. I've come, I have, I have offended a holy and righteous God, and I am not worthy to live. The moment that we come before him in humble repentance and trust in Jesus Christ is the moment God grants us mercy. Amazing. Which brings me to the next point, the Lord is our God. If you've come to Christ, the Lord is your God. Verse 7 says, for he is our God. Go figure, it would say that. He is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Now, David could say of Israel, the Lord is our God, because Israel was God's chosen people. Today, the church, we can also say this. We are God's people. We can say, when we come to Christ, the Lord is our God. We've been born again and trusted Jesus, and we can say the Lord is my God. And not only that, but God will claim you as his own. But you must be born again. You must be redeemed. I, I read another story that I want to share with you. It goes right along with this. A little boy makes a, a boat, works really hard on it, beautiful boat, a little sailboat. He makes this boat, paints it up, does a really good job on it, and he takes it out for its maiden voyage down to the river. 
It's got a string attached to it, and he puts it into the river. Floats so beautifully. Everything about it just right. And the wind picks up, and it begins to tug on the string, and the string comes loose. The boat gets loose. He does everything he can to get it back. He, it starts going downstream, and he chases it down, and he can't get it, and finally it just disappears out of sight down the stream. And so he searches and he searches, and he can't find it. A few days later, he's walking through the town, and he looks in this window, and, and there's his boat in the window. So he goes into the store, goes up to the store owner and says, hey, buddy, that's my boat. And the store owner says, well, somebody brought it in here, and, and I bought it, so it's my boat now. If you want it, you're going to have to pay for it. So he goes, and he finds all the money that he's got, and he comes back, and he buys this boat. Spends everything that he has. And listen to what he says. As he's walking out, he's holding his boat. And he says, now you are twice mine. First I made you, and now I bought you. It's the same thing Jesus does for us. First I made you, but you went your way, you went astray. But I came looking for you, and when I found you, I paid all that I had. And I bought you, and so now you're twice mine. First I made you, and now I have purchased you with my own blood. And that's why we can say now we are twice God's people. He made us, as in he physically created us and gave us life, and he also bought us. Jesus Christ purchased us with his own blood at Calvary. And so this verse 7, it says, we are the sheep of his hand. Look at verse 7. We are the sheep of his hand, the people of his pasture. That means that we are in God's care, is what he's saying. We're in God's care. In Psalm 23, you all know the psalm, but David said, what did he say? The Lord is my shepherd. And that's true. He was in the Lord's care. If the Lord is his shepherd, that means that he belongs to the shepherd. He is a sheep of his pasture. And he's in the Lord's hand, so that means that he was in the Lord's care and in his pasture. And because of that, David could say, I shall not want. Why? Because he's in the Lord's pasture, the sheep of his hand. Because of that, he could lie down in green pastures. He could enjoy the still waters. He could enjoy a restored soul. He could enjoy the paths of righteousness. He could fearlessly walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Why? Because he was one of the Lord's sheep. He was a sheep of his hand. He was in God's care. He could receive the Lord's correction and guidance. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. He could have strength in the presence of his enemies. He could eat a meal in the presence of his enemies. He could have healing and anointing. He could have a superabundance of blessing, his cup running over. Goodness and mercy following him all the days of his life and a place in the house of the Lord forever and ever. Why? Because he is a sheep of his hand and so are we. That's why Jesus said in John 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. 
The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. He did. He purchased us with his own blood. Jesus said in verse 14 of that same chapter, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. He said in verse 27 and 28 of that same chapter, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. We are the sheep of his hand. A born-again child of God, as a born-again child of God, we're the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand, and we enjoy the benefits of his care. I love that. Now we come to the warning in verses 7 through 9. And it's a warning not to neglect worship and obedience to God. Let's read verses 7 through 9. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart as in the provocation and as in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work. Now, this section is in reference to the children of Israel after they come out of Egyptian bondage. And as I said earlier, it's discussed extensively in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. And it's a warning to the people of Israel in David's day, and it's also a warning to us today, the Holy Spirit speaking uh, through the psalmist. And uh, I believe in Hebrews it says, the Spirit expressly says. So the Spirit of God is speaking to us. Anytime we're reading the Scriptures, you know that it's God-breathed, God speaking to us. And first of all, I want you to notice that this is a call to listen to the voice of God. He says in verse 7, today, if you will hear his voice. So it's a call to listen to the voice of God. God was calling on his people to hear his voice. He says, if you will hear my voice. See, there's an urgency in this warning. Notice the emphasis of the verse is the word today. Not tomorrow, but today. There's an urgency now, not later. Right now is when it needs to happen. And when the Spirit of God speaks, we need to listen quickly and we need to listen closely because it is very important what he says. And this is a warning to them and it's a warning to us today. A man by the name of Mason is quoted by Spurgeon, also in the treasury of David. He's got three here I want to read for you. If we put off repentance another day, we have a day more to repent of and a day less to repent in. Francis Quarles says this, he that hath promised pardon on our repentance has not promised to preserve our lives until we repent. Thomas Fuller says, you cannot repent too soon because you do not know how soon it may be too late. The emphasis is today, if you hear his voice. It's a sad mistake 
to hear the voice of God and reject his tender call. And yet people come into the church week after week in churches all over the world and places all over the world and the spirit of God is speaking and the voice of God is being heard in that place and yet even though they hear it, they choose to not listen to it. They choose to turn it away. They choose, I don't want to hear what the word of God says. I don't want to hear what the preacher says. I don't want to hear the voice of God. And so week after week, they say, I'm hearing the voice, but I don't want to hear what it says. And the psalmist is saying, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. And that's what's happening week after week. They're hearing the gospel preached. They're hearing the message of Christ. They're hearing the word of God. And week after week, they're making themselves harder and harder and harder to the voice of God. There are people of God that harden their heart. God may be dealing with you to do something, to start something, to quit something, and and we don't want to hear his instruction. And so we say, not today, another day. And God says, today, if you will hear my voice. And that's, that's what I... That's the emphasis of this, really. God is speaking always through his word. You realize that. But man can suppress that and refuse to hear those words. Verse 8 says, Harden not your heart, as in the provocation, as in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me and proved me and saw my work. Now, the provocation refers to the incident that happened in Numbers 20, verses 1 through 13. In Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. I'm not going to go there, but if you're taking notes, you can mark those down and read them on your own time. But it's in reference to a place called Meribah, and it's also known as Massa, and it means rebellion and testing. And the children of Israel, they're in the wilderness, and they're murmuring against the Lord because they didn't have water. Remember, he gave reference to the same incident earlier the rock of our salvation. There's a reason that he spoke about that. And they murmured against the Lord and against Moses, and it says they were ready to stone Moses. They had enough. They didn't believe that God could provide for them. They didn't believe that. Yet God brought water out of a rock in front of everybody and showed that he could do it. And over and over, the Bible says that this generation that was in the wilderness complained against God. They doubted his provision, and they sinned against him in unbelief, even though they seen his works. That was the main problem, is unbelief. That's the main sin here. At Kadesh Barnea, these people looked into the promised land. They sent spies in, 12 of them. 10 came back with a bad report, and 2 came back with a good report. And these people, these murmuring, complaining people, these unbelieving people, they saw the giants were too big. They didn't think God's promises were good enough, and they figured that their way was better than God's. And because of their rebellious heart of unbelief, they never experienced the promised land. They never experienced the joy of going into the promised land because of that. I I read in one place it should have only taken about 11 days to get there. And they wandered 40 years because of their unbelief. See, you think about it. God brought them out of Egypt by his mighty hand. It says, you've seen my works. 
over and over again. God provided for him. He brought them up out of Egypt with a mighty hand by blood and by power. And then he brings them through the waters. And when the Pharaoh is coming after him, when Pharaoh's coming after him, the Red Sea, he parts the sea and brings him through on dry ground. And they rejoice on the other side, but their rejoicing doesn't last very long because before you know it, they start complaining and murmuring again. And time again, time and time again, each thing, every time something pops up, they forget everything that God had done and they say, well, I don't believe that God's gonna come through this time and so maybe we ought to just go back to Egypt. Maybe it'd be better to be under bondage again. That's what these people were saying. Let's just go back. And their problem was that they didn't believe. God was speaking to them. He's saying, I will take you through. See, God, God brought them out of Egypt that he might bring them in to the promised land. He took them there to look at it and said, yeah, there's going to be some battles when you go in. Yeah, there are some giants and things in the land, but, but you're going to possess the land. And they just didn't believe it. They said, no, your promises, I don't know that we can count on them. I don't know that we can count on your provision. Sure, you brought us to the Red Sea and sure, you got us out of Egypt and all that, but I, I don't know. Maybe let's just go back and eat some onions in Egypt. Weirdos. But the problem was they were hardening their heart. They were hardening their heart. But God wanted to bring them into a place of joy and blessing. A land flowing with milk and honey. That's what he said. That's what God's purpose was. But they said their way is better. Our way is better. We don't, we don't think God will do it. And so I'm going to bring this to a close here real quick. The end result of a hard heart and unbelief. Look at verses 10 and 11. 40 years long, it should have been 11 days, 40 years long, was I grieved with this generation and said, it is a people that do err in their heart and they have not known my way unto whom I swear in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 19, clarifies this for us that we might not have any question. It says, so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. It wasn't that God wouldn't do it. They wouldn't believe that he would do it. God wanted to bring them into a good place. These people, they believed God enough to come out of Egypt, but they didn't believe him enough to go into Canaan. That's what it was. He says, 40 years long, I was grieved with this generation. Their wandering heart caused him to wander in the wilderness 40 years. This wasn't a head problem. It was a heart problem. He says, it is a people that do err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So unbelief caused him to miss the promised land. And he said, unto whom I swear in my wrath, they should not enter in to my rest. These people needlessly wandered for 40 years in the wilderness when they could have gone into the promised land and experienced the joy and the blessings of God. They could have experienced a life of peace, overflowing joy and life and goodness and mercy with God. But because of unbelief, because they did not believe that God could do it, then they suffered in the wilderness and and they died in the wilderness, miserable. So the warning is that we've got to be careful to listen to the voice of God, careful to obey his commands. We've got to be quick to believe and honor his word and careful not to murmur and complain. 
The thing is, there's a lot of people living defeated, miserable, wilderness lives. Christian people today living defeated, miserable, wilderness lives, and they don't have to because we have the blessing of rest in Christ Jesus. If we simply just embrace the blessings that he's already provided for us. Jesus is our rest. We can have rest here and now and enjoy the blessings and the joys and the mercies. Just like the the promised land in Christ, we can enjoy a land flowing with milk and honey. We can enjoy the blessings and the mercies of God. We can enjoy all that stuff now and have that eternal rest in the future to come. We can enter into the rest now. Believers in Christ can enjoy the victorious life of blessing in the Spirit of God now if we just simply believe Him for it. Then we'll go ahead and come up. I want to read one more passage of Scripture to you, and then we will close. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Let us therefore fear lest a promise being left of us entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest. As he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest... Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Let me say again, the Christian doesn't have to live a wilderness experience. In Christ, we come into the promised land today and now, if we believe him for it. We can enjoy that spirit-filled, blessed life. We don't have to wander around aimlessly defeated. There are blessings in Christ now. It says, we which have believed do enter into rest. And Jesus is that rest. Jesus is our rest. We can rest in his promises, rest in his provision, rest and trust his word and believe him. We can enjoy those blessings of God now, a fruitful existence, a fruitful life with Christ, the victorious, blessed life of Jesus. We can enjoy that now. In Christ, we have rest here and eternal rest hereafter. Being the new year, let me say this. Don't let this be another wilderness year. Don't take another trip around the mountain. Don't spend another while murmuring and complaining. The first day of the year, let it be the beginning of a promised land year. Lord, I want this to be a promised land year. I want to err on the side of belief. I want to err on the side of knowing that Jesus will provide my every need, my everything that I could ever possibly need. Jesus is all that I need, and I'm going to enter into the rest that he's provided for me. Oh, God, this is not going to be another wilderness year. This is going to be a promised land year. Hallelujah. I'm not going to wander in the wilderness anymore. I'm not going to murmur at God. I'm not going to doubt him and complain against him. I'm going to believe the word. I'm going to believe what he said, and I'm going to enter into that place of blessing that he gives. Don't wander another year. 
Believe God. Believe big. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly according to the power that worketh in us. Believe God, believe big, and don't wander another year. Let this be a year where you say, you know what? I'm going to go in and possess the land because my God is bigger than those giants. My God is bigger than those things that I can't conquer. My God is bigger than any mountain. He created the universe. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to possess the land. Church, let this be a promised land year. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. The Lord is a great God. Can you say that? The Lord is a great God. One more time. The Lord is a great God. Amen. Take that and believe it this year. Believe it this year. Now, we're going to take probably about the next five minutes, and we're just going to worship the Lord together. If you need to pray, if you have a need, if you don't know Christ, the altars are open. If you have a need you need to bring to these altars, maybe you just want to spend time with the Lord, we're going to take about five minutes as a congregation. We're going to worship the Lord together. We should have the words up on the screen, and let's just sing to the Lord. Let's praise the Lord. I'm not going to interrupt you if you want to, if you want to pray and spend some time in the altars. If you, need, if you need somebody to pray with you, I'd be happy to pray with you. If you don't know Jesus today, today is the day. Let's, let's go to prayer. Father, we thank you for your presence here tonight. Lord, just a, just a fresh touch of your Holy Spirit. Lord, that's my prayer for every person in this place. Lord, that there would be a desire in our hearts to know you more. A desire in our hearts to serve you more. To honor you more to love you more, to be a burning and a shining light, to worship you more. Father, let there be a fresh baptism of your Holy Spirit in this place, in this church, and in the hearts of the people in greater measure than we've ever known. Remember the prayers of your people from the past. Remember the prayers of your people today. Let the prayer come before your presence, before your throne, and God pour out a fresh anointing. In our pastor, in our teachers, in our musicians, from the oldest to the youngest, Lord, let this be a church of families, generation to generation under the same roof, praising and loving and worshiping you together. Save our families transform lives and move as only you can. Lord, I'm going to believe this to be a promised land year. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Have your way and we give you the praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Lord.